Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your... Thank you for the relationship that you have established for us with him. Thank you that your heart is to deepen that relationship. This morning, Father, we ask you to help us to freely give what we've received and to openly receive what has been given. We welcome it into our heart, not just to be information, but to be a revelation of you and who you are and your love for us, how good you are for us, how much you've forgiven us of, and how patient you are with us even now, and that you continue to draw us, literally to drag us you. Thank you for not quitting all the times we dug our heels in. Thank you for being patient with our cynicism and our criticism and continuing to bring grace and tenderness to our hearts to make us the body you want us to be. And we bless you for that today. Jesus' name, amen. Won't you take your Bible and turn to John chapter 5? I know we're going to, said we were going to get to Galatians, and we will. But uh, I want to kind of set the stage for that. In 1986, when God, at about 11.30 one night, began to expose my heart and reveal to me how much about relationship I did not know and about how valuable relationship was, not only with him but with one another. I had no idea the broad-reaching ramifications of change that that would bring about. Literally, Working that, beginning that in my heart, began to change my view pretty much of everything that I thought I understood and thought I knew about the Father, about His Son, about a relationship with Him, about the body of Christ, about what the body of Christ was and how it was to function and what it was to look like, even about how I viewed Scripture. And coming from a Southern Baptist background, you have a strong estimation of Scripture. It's not completely correct, but it is strong. And so God just began to deal with my heart about some things with that, even to the point of how I studied Scripture. And so when the Lord began to quicken me last few weeks about taking a journey, us as a body, into studying Scripture, particularly Galatians. Galatians was the first letter written by Paul. And you understand that 
the Bible's not in chronological order. It's basically the New Testament is basically from largest to smallest order. And uh, with very few exceptions. And so whenever the Lord began to speak to me about we're going to get to study Scripture, it was kind of exciting to be able to share with you some things that maybe He's shown me about studying Scripture that I pray will help you in your approach to Scripture. All of us probably, if you've been in the church very long, have been exposed to Bible study. You remember training union? Training union was supposed to be Bible study. Basically what it was was sit around and read the quarterly that you were supposed to read during the week that nobody read. And so it was boring, it was dry, it was drudgery. And I don't believe God ever intended his word to be that way. And so I just want to share two things, two short, very simple things with you about studying scripture. All right. The first one is going to be in John chapter 5. And if you want to make points out of it, here are the two points. Point number one, look for Jesus. Okay? When you study Scripture, look for Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you're in Leviticus, whoopee, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Kings, Revelation. Look for Jesus. Our purpose in studying Scripture should not be to gain knowledge but to encounter Christ. Our purpose when we go to the Scripture shouldn't be just to gain information. And it certainly shouldn't be to check the box on our read my Bible list. Well, I did that. I read Scripture. Nothing wrong with reading Scripture. just determines what you're reading it for. What are you going to it for? And our purpose in reading Scripture is not to gain knowledge, but it's to encounter Christ. Whenever I go to the Word, whenever I spend time in the Word, I don't approach from my head looking for knowledge. I approach it humbly from my heart looking for Jesus, looking for Him. In that context, I welcome His presence. He's there. He lives in me. He lives in you. So whenever I go to study scripture, I'm not there alone. I'm not there by myself. I'm not there left to my own devices to figure out what happened. I'm not there left to the interpretation of some other man to tell me what it says. I have the presence of the one who wrote it living inside of me. And it is important that when I approach it, I acknowledge his presence. I recognize that he's presence. I invite him to speak. I invite him to speak and to challenge even things that I have held dear to be true. Familiarity hinders our growth in the Lord. Because we'll be reading scripture along there and we'll come to a chapter or a verse that we're familiar with or we come to one that we don't understand what it says, and we'll just skip over it or race through it. 
and never give the Father an opportunity to speak to us to bring light to that verse that we never saw before. So my purpose in approaching Scripture is to encounter Jesus. I ask him to speak. I listen with my heart, being quiet, question, asking questions of him personally. Questions like, what does this tell me about you? How many of you would agree with me, I don't know everything there is to know about Jesus? Okay, that's a given, isn't it? We don't know everything there is to know about Jesus. So it doesn't matter how much I know about Jesus, there is always room for knowing more of him and realizing more of his presence in my life. So why would I approach scripture like I've got all I need? Why not approach it and say, Jesus, what does this tell me about you? What does this reveal to you, to me, about you that I didn't know? Another thing you say is, what does this have to do with me? I don't know if I ever told you this story before. Some of you I have. <clears throat> There's a verse in the Old Testament. It's in Psalms, and it says, Moab is my wash pot, and over uh, Edom will I throw my shoe. Okay? Moab is my wash pot, and over Edom will I throw my shoe. Now, how many of you even knew that verse was there? How many ever did an in-depth study of that verse? And when you did, you found out, I still don't know what it's talking about. Some of you remember Peter Lord. Peter's been one of the guys, he just died last year. And uh, he's one of the most gracious men I've ever met. And he was reading along in that verse, and he was coming up on that verse, and he'd read it a hundred times, and you kind of get a run and start on those verses, you know? Yeah, I ran into this, jump over that verse because you don't have a clue what it means. Well, he was right in the middle of his leap, and the Lord said, hold it. And he said, what? He said, do you know what that means? He said, I don't have a clue. He said, why don't you ask me? Okay. He said, Moab is my washpot. Moab was a pagan nation. Israel was in rebellion against me. And I allowed Moab to conquer them, to irritate them, to capture them in order to make Moab my washpot in order to clean up Israel. Wow. That's good. But what does that have to do with me? He says, you know that guy down there at the newspaper, Arctic newspaper office? And he's got a thing in for you. You know that. He doesn't care much for you. And you know that your son's been having a lot of trouble with drugs and being out there doing things he want to do. And in your mind, the worst thing that could ever happen to you is if he found out about it and wrote about it. He said, I want you to understand something. That newspaper guy is your Moab. I am using you, him to clean your attitude in your heart. You never know. You think you got it all figured out. And all of a sudden, God speaks to you and reveals something to you that maybe you took for granted. I listen with my heart, asking questions. 
Here's something that is, I don't know that it's ever verbalized, but I know that it's, whether it's inferred or implied, whatever you want to use there with, the indication is this is true. Biblical knowledge does not automatically translate into spiritual maturity. Biblical knowledge does not automatically translate into spiritual maturity or Christ-likeness. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Knowledge makes arrogant. We can know all about Scripture and not have an humble bone in our body. I've known men who were deep, deep alcoholics who were much better scholars at Scripture than I was. They knew the Scripture, but it didn't have any change in their heart. In John chapter 5, Jesus deals with some of these guys. He's just healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda, and the Jewish leaders didn't like it because it was on the Sabbath. And they got all bent out of shape about it and challenged him. They finally came to Jesus. Who do you think you are healing on the Sabbath? So he begins to go down the list. Romans chapter 5, verses, uh, well, uh, starting 33, he says, John testifies of me. 36, the works that I do testify of me. 37, the Father testifies to me who I am. And then in 39, he says, and I'm summit, and then we're going to go back. He says, the scriptures testify to me. Now, these were guys who were extremely well-versed and knowledgeable in the scripture, the Old Testament. That was their job, to know of inside out, upside down. They even challenged Nicodemus by saying, you need to look at the scriptures and see that there is no Messiah coming from Galilee. They knew their Bible. And Jesus confronts them, and he says in verse 39, you search the scriptures. And that word search means you're diligent. You seek it out. You delve into it. You study into it. You know it. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think by knowing scripture, you're automatically going to have eternal life. You think that by studying scripture, you're going to automatically have the life of God residing in you. And he goes on. It is these that testify about me. It is these scriptures that bear witness who I am. And then he says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Emphasis being. You do not have life merely by searching the scriptures. You have life by coming to me. Knowledge of the scriptures does not equal spiritual maturity. Studying it with our head does not make us Christ-like. The Bible is a sword. It can be used for surgery or it can be used for decapitation. The heart of the person who knows the scripture will determine what it's used for. 
You ever seen someone that knew scripture upside down and could rip you apart with scripture and you went away feeling like, man, I'm the ignorant person. You see, Plato and Aristotle were both students of Socrates, fourth century, fourth century philosophers. These guys were the father of modern Christian education. Well, how'd that happen? They operated from the premise. These Greek philosophers operated from the premise that knowledge is virtue. Okay? Good depends on the extent of your knowledge. The more knowledge you have, the gooder you are. Okay? Christianity embraced that and says, we have transformation by information. The more information you have, the more transformed you will be. And herein lies the root of modern Christian education. Knowledge and spirituality are the same. Or at least knowledge will automatically translate into spirituality. The more we know, the more spiritually mature we become. The problem is all of that knowledge comes off of the wrong tree. It comes off the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and doesn't come off the knowledge of life, the tree, the tree of life, which is Christ. John 39, 40 says, you know scripture, but you don't have life because you don't come to me. And that approach, although I can't ever remember it being stated, but it was certainly understood. Wow, look how much scripture that guy knows. Look how much Bible he can quote. He knows all of that stuff. He must be mature. Nowhere is this more evident to be wrong as it is in the life of the disciples. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Peter and John had just been arrested. Sadducees had brought them in, gathered together and challenged them, sent them on their way. Here's what they said in verse 13. Now they now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, that means unlettered, that means they couldn't read. They were uneducated and untrained. Well, how did they know Scripture? Most Scripture was handed down orally. They could listen. But they looked at these guys and they said, these guys are uneducated and untrained. Yet they were amazed. Why? And began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I would much rather be accused of having been with Jesus than knowing a lot of Bible. And there is a difference. Nowhere is the philosophy of knowledge equals spirituality more prevalent than in how we train our leaders 
in the kingdom, in this, in the Christian world. It's mostly all cerebral. I want to give you a statistic here. And you know, I, I'm not a statistics guy. So when something comes along, it kind of jumps out at me, but Hartford Seminary in Connecticut did a study. They interviewed 14,000 congregations. That's a pretty broad base, isn't it? They interviewed 14,000 congregations, 41 different denominations and faith groups, and 26 different surveys. And this was their conclusion. Seminary graduates and clergymen who have advanced degrees score lower in both dealing with conflict and having a clear sense of purpose than non-seminary graduates. It showed that clergy with no ministerial education or formal certificate program scored the highest on test that revealed how well one deals with conflict and stress. Bible college graduates scored slightly less. Seminary students scored the lowest. Now, here's a quote from a guy with a doctorate from the seminary. I came through the whole system with the best education that evangelicalism had to offer. Yet I really didn't receive the training that I needed. Seven years of higher education in top-rated evangelical schools didn't prepare me to, one, do ministry. I thought that's why we sent you. Learn to do ministry. Or two, be a leader. I began to analyze why I would preach a great sermon and people afterward would shake my hand and say, great sermon, pastor. But these were the very people who were struggling with self-esteem, beating their spouses, struggling as workaholics, succumbing to their addictions. Their lives weren't changing. I had to ask myself why this great knowledge I was presenting didn't move from their heads to their hearts and their lives. And I began to realize that the breakdown in the church was actually based on what we learned in seminary. We were taught that if you just give people information, that's enough. I'm not saying that learning, studying, and gaining knowledge are in themselves wrong. I am saying our approach to Scripture with a desire to encounter Christ and not just to gain information is priority. That's the most important. Gain knowledge, gain understanding, gain information. But at the heart of it, look for Christ. Where is he in the middle of this? That was the Greeks' understanding of history. The Greek believers, the people that came out of the Greek culture that came to know Christ, they believe this. History began and ended in Christ. 
Why do you think we have AD and BC? That was the center of it. That was the focal point of it. Instead of approaching it as a manual, instead of approaching it as a lecture forum, instead of approaching it just as information, approach it as a letter written by someone who is crazy about you, who is present to explain, reveal, and share what they had in mind when they wrote it and longs to have a deeper, intimate relationship with you. See it as a letter, See, which is what it was. I mean, you understand, we didn't have chapters and verses until the 15th century. And a guy who was an itinerant preacher would ride horseback, and while he was riding, he would put chapters and verse in the text. We didn't even have it. It was understood it was a letter. And in doing that, we moved it from an intimate writing to a group of churches or to a particular church to a manual. Follow this, A, B, C, D, E, F, and get these results. It's a letter. And Jesus said in John, it is the Scripture. It is the scripture that testifies that bears witness with me. But if we stop with the scripture, we only have knowledge and not spirit life. So I approach it. Looking to encounter the one it testifies of. Looking for his love. Looking for his wonder. Looking for his compassion. Looking for his graciousness. Looking to find him present here with me to reveal to me what he wants to say. Look for Jesus. We're going to start in Galatians because it's the first book. Good place to start. As you start reading it, look for Jesus. You're going to see a history of Paul. Look for Jesus. Where's Jesus in that? How does he look? What is I, What do I see in here about Jesus that I didn't see before? How is this relevant to me? That's the first thing. Look for Jesus. Here's the second thing. Expect, anticipate, wait, and welcome. They all mean the same, pretty much. Expect, anticipate, wait, and welcome. The breath of God to breathe life into what you are reading. Don't approach it like, oh, I've got to study the Bible. I can't wait. I've got to do my, and I've done this, and, and there's nothing wrong with it if your heart's right in it. You know, I've done the the one proverb and five chapters a day, and in a month you read the Bible. I mean, you know, it, I, you see uh, one chapter in Proverbs and five chapters in Psalms, you read through them in a month. Five chapters of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms. One chapter a day of Proverbs, there's 31. The last one's about women, and you know everything about women. <laughs> Jonah didn't like that. I've done that. But I did it more than anything so that when I got through, I did it. I accomplished it. Instead of expecting, anticipating, waiting and welcoming the breath of God to breathe life into what I'm reading, to quicken it, 
to my heart to make it real. You see, 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 says this, All Scripture is inspired by God. You know what that means? All Scripture is breathed by God. That's what inspired means. It's breathed. That's what gives it life. That's what gives it dynamic. That's what gives it power. And it is that that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Breath is one of the most profound expressions in Scripture. Over and over again, the Spirit of God and what that curtails is related to the breath of God. The spirit of life is always, is many times equated with the, the, the breath of God. In, in, uh, time and again, here's what we see. Time and again, we see God taking the natural, the visible, and breathing invisible into it by his spirit and making it life. Making it live. Isn't that cool? He takes the natural. He takes the visible. And he breathes into it. And it becomes alive. It becomes dynamic. It becomes powerful. And the word power in the Greek means dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. It's got power to it when it's spoken and breathed by God. We'll find the first one in Genesis chapter 2. It says, then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground. What part of man did he form? The visible. Formed it all. Here's a man. There he is right there. Bam. He could have said, wind, fill his lungs. But that's not what God had in mind. He wanted intimacy. He wanted relationship. He wanted it to be more personal than that. He formed it, and then he breathed into it, and it became a living soul, a living being. It became alive because of the breath of God. Before then, it was just a form. Before then, it was just a natural. But as the breath of God by his spirit was breathed into it, it became a living being or a living soul, depending on the translation. That's not the only place. Look over in Ezekiel, chapter 37. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. I'd have loved to have seen that. I'd love to see the Spirit of God just take his eagle and put him out in the middle of this valley. It was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface on the valley. And lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, This is always a great answer to questions God asks you. He's not asking you because he don't know. All right? 
He's asking you to see if you're going to be smart enough to think you know. He said, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord, you know. You know. Can they live? You know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel, preach. And he preached. Thus the Lord God to these bones. Thus says the Lord God of these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. I preached as I was commanded. And as I preached, there was a noise. Some of you are saying now, there's just this noise in here. As I preached, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, and there was no breath in them. And I decided to write a book about this miracle that I had seen and go on the circuit and tell everybody how wonderful a miracle it was. The problem was, there was a lot of form, but there was no life. There was the form of an army, but there was no power. There was the natural of the army, but there was no life. There was no strength. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. It wasn't just the form of an army he wanted. It was the life that God desired. And it was his breath that breathed into that that brought about life. Now we go all the way to the New Testament. You may have never seen this. All the way to the New Testament. Jesus comes on, and for three years he preaches. And he gathers this following and he tells them all this wonderful stuff. And they see all these wonderful miracles and one underlying phrase that he it keeps bringing out there is I'm going to leave, you know, and they still can't believe that. They think this is going to be it until he leaves. And so he has this natural group of followers. He has the form. He has the natural. But what he does not have is the church of the living God. Until he breathed life into them. And he says in John chapter 20, verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now there's all kinds of arguing about, did that mean then, did that mean later? That's not the point at this time. The point at this time is the breath of God was equated to the spirit of God, and they were not going to be what God wanted them to be until that form was filled with the life of God. You want to see it even better? Where did the first woman come from? Out of the side of the first Adam. Where did the second woman come from? 
out of the side of the second Adam. When soldier pierced her and blood and water came out, out of that comes his life that says, here it is. Here's the new bride. Here's the woman that God loves and gave himself for. And he breathed his life into her. And she became a living spirit as he intended for her to be. Here's the Bible. Here's the form. Here's the natural. What does it take for this to come alive? It takes the breath of God to quicken in our hearts to make it real to us. You can take it. You can cut it and paste it and post it and make it say all kinds of things. But the heart of this is only revealed to us when the Spirit of God quickens it to us. It is not the Bible that leads us into truth. John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. What does it take to speak? Breath. Breath. Every time he speaks is an impartation of breath. And every time he speaks is an impartation of life. Every time he speaks is an impartation of God's power. Every time he speaks is an impartation of the reality of God. And he says it is the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative. For whatever he hears, he will speak, and it will he will disclose to you what is to come. I want to encourage you to this. Don't walk away from Bible, from scripture study with just a bunch of dry bones and skin. Walk away with life. Walk away with the breath of God having breathed in to this form and quickened in my heart that gives me life, that gives me confidence, that gives me courage to walk out what God has for me. Look for Jesus. Wait for the Holy Spirit, for the breath of God that comes. Listen, not every believer has a Bible. But every believer has the Spirit of God. If it's just contained in the Bible, they've been cheated. But they have the Spirit of God who has come to lead us into all the truth. That's what he does. Not every believer has a Bible, but every believer has the Spirit. Here's your homework. Go to Galatians. Two things. Looking for Christ and expecting the breath of God to breathe life into what you read. The breath of God makes real, living, and present the person of Christ. That's what he says here. The breath of God makes real, living, and present the person of Christ. So as you go to Galatians, just go with your humble heart, 
Father, I don't know. I just ask you to make clear to me what all this is. Show me Jesus in the middle of this. And wait for the Spirit of God to quicken it and make it real in your heart. Then, if you will do that and give God room to quicken that in your heart, you will not be able to wait to get back to share that with the rest of the body. That's in the heart of every believer. It is in the heart of every believer that when they receive, they want to give. What do we want to do with our resources when we see someone without? We want to give. What do we do with our finances when we see someone in need? We want to, we want to give to that. What do we do with someone who needs comfort and we've been comforted? We want to comfort with that. What do we do with a life that God imparts to us? There's something in every believer that wants to share that with the rest of the body that will be built up. Okay? Go to the Scripture. Go to Galatians. Look for Christ expressing the, expecting the breath of God to breathe life into it. And then bring what he gives you to the body. And listen, I'll do the same. How's that? Okay? I'll do the same. I'm not going to work up a sermon. I will only give you where I saw Christ and what the breath of God quickened in my heart. And you ought to be happy about that. That I'm not just going to give you some more information. Okay? I'd ask you for questions. But I left my hearing aids at home, so I can't hear a thing. I came in this morning, I thought, boy, the worship team is sure playing quieter. And I realized I didn't have my hearing aids in. All right? Take that time and go to the Father with it. Let's pray. Father, we just want you. We don't even know what that looks like. You said no man comes to you except the Spirit draws them. And you showed me last week that that word draw literally means drags. And I'm asking you to drag us to you if that's what it takes. Quicken our heart. Expose the emptiness of it without you. And expose the fullness that can be had with you. So we just bless you for loving us. Thank you for this day. Jesus' name, amen.